In this interview, I talk with Robert Beer, an internationally renowned artist who's dedicated his life to both the study of Indo-Tibetan sacred art and to experiential contact with the afterlife. Robert is the author and illustrator of the Encyclopedia of Tibetan Symbols and Motifs and the Handbook of Tibetan Buddhist Symbols, as well as having his work featured in countless publications and websites. We delve into his childhood mystical experiences, his psychedelically induced psychosis and kundalini crisis, the nymphomaniac Carmelite nun, years spent in India studying with Tibet's greatest living master artist, astral encounters with long-dead Indian gurus, and Robert's extensive research into parapsychology and the spirit world. So without further ado, Robert Beer. So Robert, you were born and raised in Cardiff, Wales. At 14, you experienced something very unusual. Uh, you write here, At the age of 14, I received a vivid after-death communication from the spirit of my recently departed sister, an experience of such profound beauty, which left me with an innate conviction that the soul is immortal, pure and incorruptible. This event marked the beginning of my spiritual search. And then you go on to say, For I knew then what real love and bereavement meant but not why they visited upon us, and the world of my childhood was never the same again. Can you tell us a bit about that experience and what were the repercussions of that on you? Well, um, my sister, is my younger sister, her name was Lynn. She was born in, um, let me think, when she was born, this was in, uh, <clears throat> probably in 1961, I think. And... She was born with a sack on the back of her neck, which was full of cerebrospinal fluid. And, you know, the, the sack kind of started to grow and then it was necessary to remove this sack. So they went, my mother and father eventually um, took the Lynn up to London to basically when they were just starting, this was a hydrocephalus essentially, they were just starting to introduce the technique of a shunt in the body to train the cerebrospinal fluid from the brain with a tube and basically take it into the stomach. Um, it's very successfully done now. And in fact, I have uh, my sister's, one of my sister's grandchildren actually has hydrocephalus also, and she has this shunt and she's now 14 or 15 years old and she's doing fine. But it didn't work for Lynn. And, um, it just, what happened was they took the sack of the back of the neck and then the liquid started to um, increase in her brain, the cerebrospinal fluid, until the head grew very, very large. It was much larger than the body actually, and her whole skull was open, so the whole top of the head was very, very soft. And um, yeah, she just grew like that and her face was virtually underneath the head. And all she could do was lie, and you would turn her over um, every few hours. And then, of course, she would sleep, and you'd have to change her nappy when she was lying like that. And basically, you know, she became a kind of a deformity, really. Somebody, you, you know, none, none of the neighbors ever came in the house when this started to happen. So, and if anybody did come into the house, then my mother would put the clothes horse around the cot so nobody could see her the close house where you hang close to dry. Um, but, you know, she was very responsive to music and 
there was uh, Anthony Newley, who was one of the, um, you being a musician yourself, I believe, you might remember Anthony Newley. He might even still be alive, I'm not sure. But his records were especially wonderful for her because she really laughed. Other music you put on would make her cry. And there were, it was like there was a sensory awareness inside this child, although she would never ever develop um, as a, you know, an intellectual human being. She never learned to speak, never learned to do anything, essentially, other than suck a bottle and lie there. And um, so, yeah, so she died at the age of three. And uh, when she died, I had this very profound experience, which I guess one would call a lucid dream. I'd had, uh, it was probably my first real lucid dream, but this was literally like a day after she died. And my parents, unaware to me, had gone to the church um, because my mum was, you know, was still a church going person, essentially. And in this state I was in, which was actually a state of sleep, I was flying through the sky with this beautiful spirit uh, some of, of a woman who was about, seemed kind of ageless, but was around 20 years old. And I knew this was who she actually was. And it was like she communicated to me that this was, you know, that child who was born with this deformity and had just died. 24 hours or so before, um, wasn't who she was. She was something else altogether. It was this immortal spirit. And this was in a heavenly realm, a very, very beautiful blue sky, deep blue. And we were flying together. And it was like there was real communication, mind to mind, or soul to soul communication between us. And it was really that she came to show me who she really was. That was the essence of this experience. Um, and then we were flying together and suddenly uh, we started to crash and to hear the sound. I wouldn't say crash, but could hear the sound of bells ringing. And then I started to wake up and realized it was my mother and father coming back from early morning church. And they were ringing the doorbell because he didn't take a key. Um, so that was kind of, you know, one could say in a Freudian sense, the dream was the bell, the doorbell ringing and it all worked backwards, but it wasn't the case at all. It was a very profound experience. Um, so from that time onwards, I guess, I guess something had changed in me and I started to question, um, you know, the whole thing about religion and, and to try and ask people, you know, if they had any, any understanding of what happens when, when we die, but uh, I couldn't really get anywhere. So that was when I was 14 years old, that's what happened, basically. And so you're asking all the people around you for some sort of explanation of this experience. Where did you go from there? Well, I wouldn't say all of the people around me. I would say some people. When I, I started to work in, uh, I, when I started to work at age sixteen, in a blood bank in the hospital in Cardiff, you know, some of the, the staff in there were very sweet and very. Uh, and at that time, I was basically homeless. I was sleeping in the blood bank, um, <clears throat> sneaking in at night because they had nowhere to live. Essentially, so the people kind of realised that I was kind of a bit needed to be taken care of, especially the older women. 
and some of them were really uh, kind of open and you know so i talked to them about you know what happened to life and death and essentially so it was a question and i just couldn't really find any answer from anybody at all why were you homeless um because after she died um about a year after uh, so my father you know was fed couldn't really handle all of the sadness around everything going to the, the funeral going to the cemetery a lot and and um basically he found another lady a year or so after and then you know my mother threw him out and then yeah. my mother found another man and things just weren't very happy so i left i just left one day got angry and left and that was it just walked out never came back I was probably 16 at the time, I was still in school this time. The, the working came a bit later, um, but I would stay with school friends, a couple of school friends. One of them would leave his conservatory door open so I could come in and sleep in the conservatory. And his mother pretended not to know this was happening. And another one, another friend had a very kind of enlightened mother who um, was very easy to talk to. She was Jehovah's Witness. Uh, she ceased to become a Jehovah's Witness later when through talking to me, actually, but never mind. <laughs> that sounds interesting. How, how did you uh, How did you bring about this uh, this change then? Uh, that was many years later when I went to visit her, um, having, you know, kind of done some research, been in India, been in Nepal, come back. And um, yeah, I found out afterwards that the conversation had changed her mind, I think. She was a lovely lady anyway, um, but yes, that was just an incidental thing, not, not something important in my life. Maybe it was important in his at that time. From there, you applied to art school, mm, and yes. your, traject your trajectory as an artist took uh, an interesting turn because you were rejected from art school and that led you to encountering a man named John F.B. Miles yes. who had a very significant influence on you. Can you tell us a bit about that about that time period, about meeting John and what sort of influence he did have? Well, uh, uh, linking things together, this is not intentional. The friend whose um, conservatory was left open for me, his name was Fran, his mother had um, Pekingese dogs, you have a Lazarab, so very similar. And John's uh, father's wife, second wife or third wife, whatever it was, also had uh, Pekingese. So they, they kind of knew each other. So my friend Fran took me to meet John one day. And when I rang the doorbell, his wife, um, Carol, came out and she was very shocked to see this figure outside and when I called John immediately and the, John was really also shocked but the problem was that I looked like his best friend who just committed suicide the week before so from that time on he kind of became like um, a surrogate teacher and father figure almost even though he's only a couple of years older than me and he was um, an amazing human being really amazing artist and, and, and amazing visionary and very, very powerful character. Somebody you'd like very much. Guru Viking times 10. <laughs> <laughs> red head, red beard, you know, fearless. You know, he'd, he'd be the person who shouted loudest at football matches. He'd always speak his mind and always had the funniest quips, but was brilliant 
intellectually brilliant and his knowledge of art and especially the impressionists was incredible at that time he was like 100 years older than me what he knew his father was a, a very famous artist his mother was a, a carmelite nun who was a child used to play this is a strange story he used to play violin in the silent cinema and the parents were very strict and this was in uh, in cornwall and one night after the cinema finished, she missed the last tram and she knew her parents would be very angry. So as she started to walk back with the violin, she knocked on the door of a Carmelite nunnery, happened to be there, and um, spent the next 15 years or so as a Carmelite nun until she, until she got quite ill and then was taken to hospital. And there she met a man for the first time and fell in love with the doctor and started to fall in love with every man she met. So. She became, she was a kind of nymphomaniac nun, um, and his father was a communist artist, and the combination of these two was was the, the parents of John Miles, yeah, very, very strong, very powerful imagery, yeah. That's fantastic. And I've read some of your stories about John, mm. uh, about his artistic talent, mm. able to reproduce very complex or, and precise work almost instantly. Yeah, see, uh, he, he he was ended up teaching in art in Torquay, and he had a Tibet, some Tibetan and some Chinese students. Very interesting that he had a Tibetan student there. And, for example, you know, they would, they'd had a, a photocopied document with the title of the authorising agency from China, both for the Tibetan and the Chinese students. And they, they needed to get kind of academic credentials and so John would copy the actual Tibetan and Chinese script uh, in the red and the black ink that it, that it was used in and impeccably first time so it was kind of like any script he could he could write he could write Arabic not not, not knowing these scripts but just by visually seeing them um, just phenomenal skill with the brush he was you know very very delicate in you, well, you, you've probably seen some of the images on my website of John's mandala paintings. Yes. And yes, he was a very uh, incredible influence on my life yeah. and on many other people's lives. He was really outrageous. Yeah, really outrageous. <laughs> From there, you, you write, Throughout my life, I've had many different mystical and spiritual experiences, some prolonged and blissful, others spontaneous and image-shattering. Mm. They're part of the imaginative and spiritual landscape that I've chosen to explore and inhabit with its vast population of peaceful and wrathful deities. All of these experiences are transitory. They come and go. They have a beginning, middle and end, and they no longer serve to condition my understanding. And one of these mystical experiences occurred in 1968, when at the age, I suppose, of 19, it would have been, you had what you call a psychedelically induced psychosis or a Kundalini crisis. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about this event and uh, what unfolded as a consequence of it? Um, well, I'd taken a lot of LSD. I really, uh, I'd gone to Istanbul and then came back and kind of been turned on to LSD. And in Istanbul, I was very taken with the Blue Mosque. And, you know, that was a kind of... I happened to be, end up in Istanbul with a vague idea of going to Tibet to become a Tibetan monk because this was like when I was 20. Um, so I'd taken a lot of LSD and it was 
basically I was, you know, the group, the friends I was with, it wasn't kind of taking LSD and going to concerts. It was taking LSD and sitting very, very still in meditation state almost and, and just exploring the inner space that happened between people. Um, and then, so I, I kind of was very into that. And you'd discover, you'd realize a lot of things. And then at that time, because of Evers, Evans Wentz's uh, Yoga and Secret Doctrines, I became a bit involved in trying to practice poem, projection and consciousness on LSD, which was a wee bit dangerous probably. Um, and then one night I took a very small amount of LSD with some friends and, and something happened. I felt something rising up inside me, uh, really literally up my spine, and I knew I was going to die, and this energy came up, and as I stood up to get out of the house, it exploded, and I went completely unconscious, and it was like my head exploded into a mass of, of like blue veins filling the room, and I felt very, very slowly to the floor. And, so they took me outside and I came around about half hour later and I knew that the world would never be the same again. It was as simple as that. <laughs> what happened? What was the, what were the uh, changes? Uh, the changes were, to begin with, I found it very difficult to stay in my body. Uh, I would constantly have to keep moving. Uh, they felt like there were knitting needles in my ears there was a taste of gunpowder in my throat and an incredible pressure on the eyes from behind. A very, very physical sensation, but the worst sensation was whatever object I happened to touch or if I was with a person and I happened to give them an embrace or kiss somebody, my body and that body would become one body. So my body kept distorting my sensation of bodily form, and this went on for a very long time. It took about seven years before I came through. I wouldn't say the sensations were the same all the way through, but they were psych sometimes psychotic. They were kind of demonic visions and demonic voices. And when, those, when it got really bad, I would just have to go out and walk because I couldn't really sit still because I would just disappear into the space, you know, just disappear into the floor or the room I was in and everything in, in my field of vision would become two-dimensional. It would be a pattern rather than an actual three-dimensional reality of the world. So I wouldn't say that was a constant state, but it happened pretty much every day for various times. So I'd often have to kind of bow my way out of things. So I became very humble and very... Um, lost I guess and found nobody I couldn't explain to anybody what I was experiencing there was nobody I could really relate to on that level I knew I, I thought I'd have to be hospitalized and that's at that time of course I'd been involved with India Indian music various Indian gurus uh, reading Tibetan texts and not, I wouldn't say reading actually Tibetan I still read Tibetan but um, you know very involved with all of these esoteric traditions which also included Sufism and Gnostic Christianity, all of which are still very vital to me in a sense to to bounce off as 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 a, as a human experience rather than one specific method of attaining release from whatever one imagines. Mm -hmm. Do you think it was the 
combination of the POA, which is the Tibetan practice of projecting your consciousness out of the body, usually at the time of death, Mm. and the LSD. Mm. Do you think it was that combination that triggered this Kundalini uh, crisis? And perhaps it might be worth explaining a a little about what a Kundalini Kundalini crisis is is said to be. But do you think it was that combination of the the technique you were trying to apply and the LSD that created this situation? Well, the experience was something moving, something very hot moving up my body and at the same time sweat pouring down from my face in an instant. And it, this actually going up and realizing it was going to go and blow my skull open. <laughs> and it did. That's what happened. Something happened. It just, I went completely unconscious. I wouldn't say it was the same as the power experience that people have. <clears throat> you know, I know I know people practice power and, you know, most people <laughs> have a little pimple on the top of their head and they put a blade of grass in. I have one friend who, who actually... I did it and actually literally blew the whole top of her head off and all serous fluid was dripping from the top of her skull. It was a massive kind of, she really did it forcefully, but she was a great practitioner. She is, she's still alive. She's a great practitioner. Um, yeah, I, I'm not making any claim. It was just a, an experience that's, <laughs> that did involve the nervous system and the brain and penetrating up into the skull for sure. Um, I wouldn't make any claims about it being a an enlightening experience because far from it, it was a, a traumatic experience. And I think from various friends who've had those experiences back then with LSD and, you know, basically some psychedelic drugs, everybody's experience was different. People who went out there and never came back, they went on different experiences. They went in, you know, they had profoundly different forms of psychosis at that time. There weren't many, but there were a few. And two of them happened to be my two closest friends also. Yeah. So both of those, uh, well, one of them was my closest friend. He eventually died coming to see me in, in Kabul. He was killed in a car crash in 1971, I think, when I was living in Dharamsala. Mm. So I, I, I wouldn't make any claims on it being anything other than it was a psychotic experience. I never ever took any psychedelic or smoked dope after that. That was 1969. I was actually 21 years old at the time. It's, you said it took you about seven years for the, the strongest and most disruptive of those symptoms to come somewhat yeah. under control. Yes. What was the process of... of of, of doing that how, how did you go about that what did you find was was working for you what resources did you discover well i was i was i was painting i was doing psychedelic art which was psychedelic art with a very um spiritual theme you know meditation meditation posture you know figures with all kinds of things happening around it, auras and all these wonderful visionary things um, and also, I, was, I learned to play. I was playing sitar back in the in the early seventies. So I was very involved with the you know the whole esoteric side of the kind of. I, I would never class, classify myself as a hippie who would hang out in rock concerts and dress in you know fantastic clothes or whatever. I was I was really like somebody out there experimenting with uh, nature of reality essentially from the beginning. Yeah, from the time I guess from the time of my sister, that experience of my sister changed everything. Changed. 
And my girlfriend and I, Frances, she died a couple of years ago, and actually she ended up being a student of Nagpa Chogyam at the end, who I, I just saw is actually one of your recent interviews. She died a couple of years ago, Frances. Uh, we went out to India together. I had to go to India because I really couldn't stay in, in Britain in this particular state. So we hitched out across to India in 1970 and, and went up to Nepal and then spent the next six years basically, although we separated at different fronts and that, I, I spent the next six years in India and Nepal. Yeah. Kind of recovering. Very, very much like. Broke, a broken person in many ways. I was very shy, very quiet. I wasn't, I, you know, I, I was in Dharamsala 1971 before people really started to arrive, the Western people, and I left because there was just so much. I couldn't, you know, I didn't belong to that kind of, um, you know, a search in the, in the spiritual meaning for a kind of something to, as, as a kind of way of life, I just wanted to kind of recover, basically. So I spent most of my time um, painting. So that's when I got into Tibetan art and also studying Indian music. So I changed from sitar and played Sarod. So I studied Sarod and Tibetan art and newer art, essentially. Yeah, as a, as a, as a method of, uh, of, of keeping myself grounded, because if I was concentrating on these things, then it was, it was entering into a place of stillness and not kind of being mentally agitated that was important. Mm. And how um, important is that uh, practice of concentration through art or whatever it may be still to your well-being today? Is it something that you still need as much as you needed it then? Or is it something that was remedial at, at that time and then things were a bit smoother afterwards? Um, well, my interest, my interest, knowledge, uh, research in, in Tibet, both Tibetan and Indian, you know, Hindu tantric art, um, still remain. And I work on, work with the art, you know, as my website is full of these images. So I continually work with that. I came to understand the Dharma through the art itself rather than the other way around, rather than being receiving teachings all of the time from you know, from different teachers. Um, it was much more, cont there was contact with various lamas, and, uh, um, mainly two lamas, which was Upper Rinpoche and Manali, and then later come to Rinpoche and Tashijong, who was really uh, an amazing artist himself. and. Probably the, one of the most uh, amazing lamas of his time, of that time, Drupa Kagyu tradition, both Abba Rinpoche and, and Kamta Rinpoche. And uh, Kamta Rinpoche studied at Tibetan craft community, at a place called Tashijong, near near, Dams, near Kangaroo Valley in Dhamsala area. And um, I basically worked as an artist for him, making images for various uh, ones he was due to give in Bhutan for the Queen of Bhutan at that time. That was in the later, mid-74, 75, that was a few years later. Um, yeah, so it was kind of, you know, it, it, now it's so much easier to learn all of these things. At that time, there was no, 
and very few Tibetan artists who weren't working in road crews, breaking stones to earn a living. Yes, having recently been... Yes, exiled, you know, you know. So that was, you know, that was the reality. And, and so I studied with Jampala, uh, or I, I'd say I basically lived in the same compound as, as he did, who was a, considered to be the state artist of Tibet, who mainly was working with the Dalai Lama and the office of Tibet in, Dharm, in uh, Dharmasala at that time, I'm very interested in this, and I've, I've seen this coming out also in, in some of your writings, this idea of understanding the tradition from the inside out or from the art or through the art itself. Mm. When we look at the at the, the vast and very complex or foreign symbolism and the detail and all of the rich uh, context of, of, that, of that sort of art, it, it would be very difficult to know where to start. You said, I would describe myself as being self-taught mm. and living by a dharma that has no credentials. Intuition has always been my greatest teacher. You've said in your writing that the obsessive quality of your pursuits of these art styles, always at the drawing board, constantly working on it. Mm. And you've written that, that you managed to somehow penetrate into the meaning of the art, into the meaning of the symbolism and understand the tradition from that sort of a place. Yes. Can you talk a bit about about that process and, and how it's different from approaching the art from the other way around? Uh, sure. Um, well, to begin with, let me qualify where I say Dharma without credentials. Um, this is something that Shogyam Trumper, it's a statement of Shogyam Trumper, um, that he basically said that. And I thought that's a great statement. So I'll, I'll I'll, I'll grab that. <laughs> I'll take that. Um, and I put it in my encyclopedia. Basically, I got no credentials. I don't, you know, I didn't study in the university. I'm not going to list a load of 50 or 60 teachers that I've met in Tibet, uh, Tibetan teachers and Indian teachers in my life. Um, yeah, I didn't have any credentials. It's just I just loved the deities. And the deities, to me, as, as I say, I'm not sure where you've read things about me, but I would say that my 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 contact with the Dharma itself was Aboriginal. It was not intellectual. It was really Aboriginal. It was ne necessary for me to understand um, what one's true nature is, essentially from from within rather than from being introduced from it without. So, coming back from India. In 1976, um, I had a, a, a friend, a good friend who died two years ago, Edward Henning, who was a very, very brilliant and probably the mo one of the most brilliant Westerners involved in Tibetan uh, studies. He was, he had a, his website was kalashakra.org, so he was an expert on the Kalashakra Tantra and Tibetan astrology and even kind of rewrote the whole Tibetan calendar system because there were mistakes in the way they were using it, for example. The Tibetan oh. government themselves didn't understand all of these things. So he penetrated it deeply into the, I'm going to use a few words, Jonangpa tradition. The Jonangpa tradition was essentially a tradition that held the Kalashakra teachings and also a form of understanding emptiness called Shengtong which was basically in agreement, more in agreement with my philosophy of life at the moment. And the Galupas essentially took over all of the Jonangpa monasteries back in the, the 17th century 
And they ditched the view on emptiness and they kept the Kalashakra teachings. So Edward was kind of well-versed in that tradition and was a, a student of the Kamapa, essentially, also um, the 16th Kamapa and Trangu Rinpoche and Tengu Rinpoche. And together we decided to create a, an, a basically a, a manual of the deities of the Kamakagyu tradition. Now, Edward worked on the, all of the different texts that he had from this, and I, had, I would receive all of his notes. So in 1979-80, I began making these drawings, iconographic drawings of the grids of the deities, how the deities are structured and drawn. And from that, I had Edward's translation of, of some of the symbolic meanings of certain deities, not all of them. Um, so it was almost like that was it's my introduction to uh, the first time, I guess, that that material had been translated, and it's still not available, interestingly. Um, you know, and that project we had a shelf because we couldn't get funded. That's a problem in my life. I just everything I've tried to do has been lack of fund or lack of uh, support on uh, on one level, mainly maybe because of this old story about what I had to go through at that time. Um, yeah, so it's it's been a struggle, but in the process, I've learned a lot of things. And, and sadly, there's great sadness in me. I'm 70 years old now, but then a lot of the material that, that I've, uh, I have at hand has not been published. And it's a bit too late now, really. The encyclopedia I wrote while I was making the drawings in the book itself, after I'd collected, I'd finished all of those drawings, which took quite a few years to do, I just literally sat down in London. I did them in the Highlands of Scotland, essentially, when we were living up there with my wife and two daughters. And, um, yeah, I did them up there. And then in London, I just... Wrote, started writing with a pen, and some um, uh, my publisher friend Anthony Harris lent me, gave me an old Apple Classic, and I learned to type with one finger, as I still do, and um, would write with a pen all day, and then transfer it to the computer at night. But all of that was done without the internet being available. So that you know, if I'd written it now with the availability of the internet. And more hindsight, it would have been far better and more authoritative book. There are some mistakes in it. I acknowledge that yeah, myself. Why do you think the difficulty in getting funding and support has something to do with what you went through in your early 20s? I wouldn't say it's what I went through in my early 20s. I think it's a, a, a part, a pattern in my life. Um, yeah, pattern in my life. Like for the encyclopedia, when it was published, the publisher... Anthony was the publisher, and then he handed it over to a, another person. And basically, I didn't receive any royalties, so I had to take it away and put it with Shambhala Publications. You no, know, pay me. Um, so it just stories like that, and, and essentially, I'm maybe too much of a soft touch. So all of the people, <laughs> thousands of people, literally have contacted me asking for logos even before the encyclopedia was published for the dharma centers or images for the dharma centers and I, I do it without any idea of getting paid to do it so it wasn't until um, i put on an exhibition at tibet house in, in uh, new york uh, just a month after 9 11 that um 
and had money for the first time because a lot of my original paintings sold. And that was the first time in my life that I'd ever had any money, actually. Um, up to then, I'd just been living from hand to mouth. That's quite surprising, I must say. Mm. You're now, I, I think it's fair to say, internationally recognized for your work in Indo-Tibetan art mm -hmm. and iconography. And I think many listeners will have come across your work in publications such as uh, Legends of the Masidas, mm -hmm. uh, which you illustrated, and uh, as we mentioned, the Encyclopedia of Tibetan Motifs and Symbols, as well as in many uh, Dharma Center logos and uh, prayer flags yes. um, all around the world, really. And m much of your style has, has actually fed back and influenced the Newar artists and, and art as it's, as it's done in India. Yes. And the effort and time that goes into the process of creating these pieces is, is really incredible. The detail of the, of the line work and the physical control that must take, mm -hmm. um, not to mention the, the patience. Can you tell us a bit about what creating these sorts of pieces entails and, um, and what it demands on you as the artist? Uh, essentially, it's, it's a process of being with yourself. Um, of just being able to be completely able to, to um, yeah, just be still in, within not to get aggressive. I, I'll, I'll come up with one story. This is my story. My teacher came to shame. I'd been given uh, Nundra teachings. This was back in 72, I guess, uh, by Abu Rimshe, uh, my friend Gerardo Abud, who's now a great translator, and uh, translated for me with Abu Rimshe. And so I started to do the prostrations in the Vajrasattva. And I was doing this. Also, while well, I was with Kamtaru Shay in 1974, and I was trying to do like you know a huge number of prostrations in the morning and a huge number in the night, and and then spend the rest of the day make, working on these paintings that I was making for the for basically for these initiations he was to give in Bhutan. And one one day I was doing prostration, and I just got so angry I just picked up the prostration board and threw it at the altar. And, you know, it was just kind of this, like, incredible relief. And, and I f felt that my mind and company were connected at that very moment. And I just knew I had to get on the bus and travel. I was living outside of Tashijong in, in the house that come to originally lived in, which is about 10 miles from Tashijong. So I went on the bus immediately, got a, a bus and went to see him and told him what I did. And he laughed out loud and he said, I think you better stop, you know, doing the nundra. I think you're really, your best thing for you to do is just paint. <laughs> not to kind of go along that path. So it was kind of, it was forcing myself into something that wasn't me really, um, mm -hmm. to do all of those heavy preliminary practices, which people have to do, and then to do these long retreats. You know, I have friends who've done it. I've done many, quite a lot of friends who've done three-year retreats and done, some people done even 30 years retreat and very dear friends. Um, but I feel, I don't, I, yeah, I just feel like I'm, I'm okay with where I am, really, with it, spiritually on that level. It's not like I'm searching for a, a method of, um, of, of realizing what's already there. And it's always there, and it's never not been there, the continuity of existence itself. Hmm. Um, and that takes me into the 
afterlife field, essentially. Uh, which is also, you know, apart from my work with Tibetan art, Tibetan symbolism, I've also had very profound experiences. Uh, one extremely profound experience that I will mention is was the week before Kamta Rinpoche died when I was living in London. A friend had been around a few days before and he came with a bottle of champagne and I never really drunk champagne. He never could afford a bottle of champagne. And the cork flew out and hit the ceiling and he said, you have to be hit by a champagne cork. And I said, no, I've never even seen one before. And about this time, Camden Rinpoche actually died. And there were very, I was living alone in this big house in London um, that everybody else had left. It was a kind of commune to begin with. And there were very strong experiences happening. And then the day that Camden Rinpoche died, had a very, very profound experience. And literally, almost the next day, I woke up in my room and there was somebody in the room with me who was really, really angry. And it was this Indian character, an Indian man wearing white with a stick and wearing a white kind of headband wrapped around his head. And he threw something at me and hit me on the back of my right hand. My right hand came up in a big well. And what he'd thrown was a champagne cock. And my, I looked and literally he'd gone. He just disappeared. And I thought, my God, what is this? It's actually, this is a physical appearance of a visionary form. <laughs> the champagne cock was there. There was a huge wealth in my hand. And I, my hand, I was completely shocked. I just didn't know what had happened. And so I went out. And this was living in Camden Town. And around the corner, there was a man called Reggie who used to clean houses and sell all of the junk that he bought from houses. And as I was passing the stall, I saw the picture of this man that I'd just seen, and it was Shirdi Sai Baba. Shirdi Sai Baba died back in 1918, I think. Um, but he's the most famous guru in India now because... Um, especially in, uh, in Bombay. I just recently was in Mauritius and there were a lot of people from Bombay coming there for holidays. And uh, they were all Shirdi Sai Baba devotees. It's huge in India, every, especially in Maharashtra, in, in southern India, uh, you know, western India, Maharashtra state near Bombay. Um, yeah, he's, he's, he's the most famous guru in India and always will be, I think, because what happened to me happens to thousands of people every day. They have similar experiences that I had, They're touched by this being. So the book that I saw on this junk stall, on Reggie's stall, was probably the only book on Shirdi Sai Baba in the country at that time, in England. So of course I bought it and started reading it, and it was like I entered into a, a, another realm altogether of having contact with a teacher who was deceased, who was in my, in my, in my sight, in my sight and in my sight in a way that was kind of ecstatic um, awareness. And basically I would say that that lasted for about nine years, um, that experience, and, and then gradually just I felt you know, there's no longer the need for a, a physical embodiment of a teacher. 
even though it might sound arrogant for me to say that. But I felt what I understood or what I'd learned from, from that, besides the mystical experience itself, being in the presence constantly of a divine essence, was how karma works, beginning to understand what karma really is. And he was a master of manipulating people's karma. Um, he's well worth looking up, Shirdi Sai Baba. Nobody is ever disappointed in looking at Shirdi Sai Baba. And of course, he's no longer alive, so he's impeccable on that. <laughs> he, can't, he can't be cast down. He can't be cast down. Mm. Right. Could you tell me a little bit more there about how that communication was, was going on and what specifically about karma you learned through that whole process? Um, I guess because I, I, I've eventually found all the material on his life and actually went to Shirdi in India th three times. And, um, you know, he was, a, he was just nobody. He had no name. Nobody knew he was if he was a Hindu or a Muslim because he, he, he seemed to practice both things at once. Uh, he just appeared there in this village as a young boy and um, people realized that they had a, a, a profound a profound saint living with them essentially and he just grew in magnitude and uh, more and more people started to come to him and he just lived all of his life in a, a dilapidated mosque and in a Hindu temple and would practice Hindu rites in the mosque and and Islamic uh, rites in the temple, for example. So he, he kind of tried to bring together the streams of, of, of Islam and Hinduism, which are very, very counterproductive, uh, oftentimes in India, as everybody well knows from partition. Um, so I guess the working of karma was like, it's something that I can't explain. It was almost like I was beginning to see into other people's relations, other people's experiences, and felt that there was a an ability to to work with people on a on a different level that was not religious as such, not 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 doctrinal or religious or using any terminology that would correspond to Buddhism or Hinduism or Christianity as such. Uh, more a kind of open awareness. I can't I can't really define that state because I don't possess it anymore, but it did last for a very, very long time. And it was a wonderful experience to go through. Yeah. Mm. You said that you gained some insight into how karma really works. Mm. Yeah. What insights did you gain? Well, I would say that came later, but it was, it was the evolution of that, the embryonic understanding of, of how, of seeing how situations like people, that I was meeting or people that you are familiar with, it was almost like a mandala. There'd be reasons for the contact. You could see that there were, you could see beyond the kind of superficial, this is a friend, this is not a friend, um, that everybody had the same kind of uh, potential as such, I guess. Uh, so it's an ability to see into people's souls a bit, I would say, if that doesn't sound too arrogant. Um, which I feel is maybe the most precious gift I still have. Um, yeah, like that, really. Can you think of an example of, of this ability to see into someone's soul? 
Um, well, I think of it now in, in you know, the, a major event was the death of my daughter. Yes. I have two daughters and my elder daughter, Karina, died. That was, um, she was uh, 23 and drowned in a diving accident. And from that time onwards, things have radically changed. It was uh, after she died, I did the, well, let me say, let me say to begin with, she came to see me a week before she died, and it was almost like we were. She was telling me what was written, and I was telling her what was written. It was like we knew what was going to happen, and she talked about it. And I was aware that there was going to be a problem in this diving um, thing that she was going to go on because the water was very cold, too cold, and she'd been on this. She was training as a nurse in London. And they had a diving club, and she was part of the diving club. And the last, the previous year she'd gone diving, the water was too cold, and she felt she couldn't really handle it. And she was worried about that. And it was almost like it was being revealed that this was part of my destiny and her destiny to go through this in a certain way. So she drowned, and and. Um, Things, everything changed in my life from that point on. I guess I did the reading of the Bardo after a few days because of the dreams I was having. I didn't want other people to do it, so I started reading the what came out then as the first full tran translation of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which is by Gume Dorje translated. And uh, Tupton Jimpa worked on it, and Graham Coleman was the editor. I'd actually worked on the iconography of that book on some notes on the, all of the deities, especially the yoginis at the, who surround each of the main figures. So I started doing the powder uh, practice probably about three or four days after and did it until the 49th day and found that I was actually reading less and less. It was communication. I really felt that I was able to call her spirit to me, and if she was there was a presence there, and whatever I was reading and talking about, trying to instruct, was from the depth of my heart and in all humility, from what I was understanding of what I was reading in the text. I'm, I'm kind of familiar with it anyway. And I found I was reading less and less and concentrated much more on the bardo of becoming, or seeking rebirth, and found less and less because so much of it was kind of frightening. Essentially, you don't really want to know those things. And so I finished 49 days, and that was that. I stopped. Um, and then, interestingly, about a, a year later, uh, somebody came to visit me. A friend came, and he brought a, a classical musician, composer, friend along with him. And uh, this person knew that I'd lost my daughter, and he, he said he had this um, channeler in America, um, you know, and he would like to one day to, you know, that, talk with her, so I just let it go. I didn't say anything about the Bardo teachings or anything or what I'd done. Uh, it, it was just an afternoon visit. But anyway, about a, a year later, he sent me an email from America. He was in America with his channeler, and he'd asked his channeler about me and my daughter, was there any message? And she came up with Karina's name and said, you know, after she died, <clears throat> she was uh, ex 
met by a lady called Rusia, Rosia, which is the name of my other daughter, which was also the name of uh, Karina and Rosia's maternal grandmother, a Polish name. And um, she said some things about what Karina was like, and then she said, tell Robert that she stayed with him for seven weeks after she died to comfort him. And it was like I suddenly realized I had been looking at the wrong end, through the wrong end of the telescope. It wasn't me trying to help her. It was her staying or coming to me in those readings that I did, usually around midnight. And it kind of made sense to me. And from then on, things began to change. So I started to deepen my um, awareness of, of what karma is, how afterlife experiences are deathbed vision, especially near-death experiences, all things to do with things that I've studied all my life, but now really just devoted most of my, not that I wouldn't say time, but most of my heart to exploring these levels of reality. You've written here that after your eldest daughter died in, in that diving accident at the age of 23, mm. 12 years ago, you've said, from this tragedy I realized that Although the Tibetan tradition is rich in its theoretical teachings on death and dying, it's actually quite impoverished when it comes to dealing with an intense grief of this nature. Mm. You go on to say, for the past years I've been researching the afterlife outside of the conceptual doctrines of any religious system mm -hmm. and guided purely by my own intuition. What has been the trajectory of your explorations in, in, in this area of death, afterlife, uh, rebirth and so on? I would say, uh, to begin with, uh, coinciding with this, what I just talked about with, you know, Karina and this friend, a composer, I, I wouldn't say a friend because I only met him once, actually. Um, at, around that time also, I um, I knew there was a series of programs on TV called Talking to the Dead, which featured a group of spirit mediums, BBC One. There were four, a series of four. This was back in, uh, I guess, 2000. Um, and two in the winter and one of these mediums really was stood out as being phenomenal his name was Gordon Smith from who was a hairdresser in Glasgow and uh, I just knew that I would really have to I would really wanted to see Gordon Smith and just by coincidence a friend of mine managed to arrange a meeting because she was involved in the publishing world Gordon is really phenomenal spirit medium incredibly gifted and he's hailed as Britain's finest spirit medium. So I did actually meet him and and something happened in that session with my daughter. I was I won't go into that there because it takes too long and it's a bit difficult to really even understand. But something happened that he didn't understand and so we became kind of close for a while. And so I began uh, kind of researching, uh, just looking into a, 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 some of the spirit mediums in Britain who were very, very good. There were three of them at that time. And I'm sure there's dozens more, but three of them were, were well known. And also um, around that time, of course, started looking into near-death experiences, etc. And also into Michael, Dr. Michael Newton's work, Life Between Lives. Michael Newton uh, developed a, a technique of... Um, hypnosis, going beyond past life regression and going basically using, um, trying to find the most recent past life 
and to go to the death in that particular past life and then to begin the real experience of in of life in between lives the, the inter interstate essentially which the tibetans would refer to as the bardo and of course you know i i read his book for through and through his two books journey of souls and destiny of souls um and also at the same time, I quit smoking because I taught myself to self-hypnotize. Um, so I never smoked a cigarette since or ever felt a craving. And so um, a group of four of us, my partner, Joel, myself and two other friends went and had uh, these Life Between Life or LBL sessions. And they were incredibly profound for all of us. They were life-changing um, on that level because... It's almost like it's almost like when you go through something like that, you're there. You know, you're there. You it's a it's a it's um and the, it's the sheer consistency. He 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 was a, a clinical psych, psych uh, hypnotherapist who had no interest in whatsoever in past life regression back in the sixties when when it all became popular. Ended up having people starting to go into the space in between lives and then devoted the next 30 years or 40 years of his life to doing 7,000 individuals on these four or five hour journeys into the interlife experience and started, he said he felt like he just scratched the surface of the spirit world. Um, so, you know, these experiences were incredibly profound. I won't even go into them um, at all for, for all of the four people who had these at that that. that that time, this was back in 2006, I think, 2005, uh, 2006, yeah. Um, no, I'm sorry, it's a bit later, 2008. So, uh, yeah, so that kind of set the ground for understanding karma in a completely different way. <laughs> Uh, and I can't, I can't, you know, I meet people and they say, oh, you know, I lost my child and I went to see my teacher and they said, oh, they're in this realm now with this foot of field. And I said, do you know that? Do you really know that? Or is, you know, or is that, you, you need to know yourself. One need, we need to find out. We need to know. And I, I would say that this is my path, you know, exploring the afterlife is really my path. And it's a path of, of thousands of people in our time, millions and millions of people, because the evidence is being made so available, especially through NDE experiences, which you yourself have had. And, and maybe yet haven't begun to investigate our process. I can't say that, but, you know, these experiences can be extremely profound, as are deathbed visions. Anybody who works in hospice has these experience of the relatives coming. So this idea of a bardo with these six realms, it's almost like playing Tibetan roulette with a six-chambered gun, you know, the idea of it. You can go to these different realms, but people occasionally have these negative experiences in NDEs, but in deathbed visions, very rarely. Um, and deathbed visions are very, very common. People who die in hospice, most of the people start to have dreams or visions or see their relatives coming and start communicating. I heard a beautiful, I read a beautiful story today about um, a, a man, a woman whose husband was dying, was in hospice, and when he actually was dying, 
she was away and the carers phoned her up and said, you have to come quickly, Is something's wrong, he seems to be very agitated. And she came there and she really, when she saw him, immediately a big smile came on her face. She said, he's not agitated, he's speaking to his mum and dad who were deaf and dumb. They died, he's speaking in sign language. <laughs> so it's kind of, you know, these things are just so incredible, you know, the, the level of things that one can look at. And they all open the heart in a way that you tap in to these experiences of transformation. Now, the amazing thing about near-death experiences, the very positive one where people go very deep, is year after year after year, they transform. They become far more altruistic, open-hearted, open, caring people. And I don't often find this kind of um, a natural compassion and understanding of uh, humanity itself in a lot of people who um, are involved in, in any kind of religious practice as such or spiritual practice. You know, it's um, some people are. I've, I've, you know, some wonderful friends who are uh, meditation teachers, Buddhist meditation teachers, both in the Theravada and, and Vajrayana and Dzogchen traditions. Um, but they're, they're, they're few and far between compared to the, the general run of things, I think. And that those people really have that kind of presence. And I do find that gets as the years go by now, it gets easier for me to talk about these things to people because there's so much more public awareness of it. You know, even some, like um, one of the famous Tibetan lamas claims to have had a near-death experience recently and said it, it, it really made his practice develop far stronger because of this experience. Are you referring to Mingyur Rinpoche? Mingyur Rinpoche, yes. Mm. But whether that was a near-death experience or... Uh, I'm using near-death in terms of actual death experience, when people are actually clinically dead, or whether it, it was a near-death, meaning he came near death, but it wasn't cardiac arrest, out of body, into the other realms of, uh, of non-physical being. What do you think it is about that range of experiences that is so transformative compared to, as you're saying, the religious religious practices which uh, purport to be after the same effects, really? I would say it's um, it's self-empowering. It's, it's simply self-empowering. I don't belong to any group involved in, in NDE research or anybody at all. I just do my own research. Um, and... It's useful sometimes if somebody loses their partner or somebody loses a child, they come and talk to me and I'm able to, I don't have a problem talking about these things. And it's, I'm not making any claim here, but I, it feels like while I'm talking with those people, it feels like I'm aware that the spirit of the person they love is trying to reach them <laughs> and say, I'm here all the time. There's no separation whatsoever. There's no separation. So and it's, it's, it gives a, a whole new perspective on, on everything to me, essentially. Uh, and even people who go to these realms, you know, who, who've made these journeys, like in, in the Tibetan tradition, you know, you have the Dalog tradition with these people, these used often women who will die for a period of time and then come back and then 
with messages for various people and explain the different realms that they went to. But it's all in that kind of, uh, it's all in, in the in the field or the imagery of the the, the 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 tradition that they belong to, and I, there's just thousands and thousands of different um, realms of existence. A good friend of mine is Annie Tenzing Palmer. She's a good friend. Uh, you know, she's a remarkable woman, and of course, she had an NDE when she was five years old, and um, had the full experience. You know, deep, deep, deep beings of light, realms of light, and her mum. I met her mum. Before, long before I met Annie Tenzin Palmo, Annie Tenzin Palmo, mother, which was a spiritualist, I happened to meet her when Camden Rinpoche came to England in the late 70s. Uh, yeah, so like with Tenzin Palmo, it's so easy to talk and about that level because what, what she's teaching is, is in essentially from a place of, of uh, pristine awareness. Um, even though she's a great practitioner and has all of these nuns in her memory, and you know she's so open-minded to these things, and, and quite a few other people will get in that way now. It it wasn't like that five years ago. It wasn't like that eight years ago, ten years ago. It's it's becoming more available. I think this kind of research, and it's worth looking into, and it involves reincarnation, and to the idea that somebody can reincarnate. In 49 days, will reincarnate in 49 days. Is, is not, it doesn't hold up, essentially. All of the work that's done on past life memories of, of children who were born with these memories, the, the intervals between their life, you know, it's getting closer, it's getting shorter as the world gets more and more populated. But all of these things create the same picture to me. And it's, it's like this wonderful picture of reality itself with a capital R. And I'm just beholding it, and it's it's vast, 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 vast. And what I'm seeing is just the scratching also of the spirit, essentially. Mm. Yeah, and I use the term spirit as incarnation. I use the term soul as that which is not a con continuity of the personality. Because when past life regression happens, when people have several past lives, there doesn't seem to be any continuity. They can be a very spiritual person in one life and in a later life be a very bad person. It's it's almost like, you know, that the, 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 there's there's reasons behind things that we, we we just begin to glimpse. And it's the glimpsing of this, the, as the veil is opened in our time that I find phenomenal, which coincides with quantum mechanics and all other, other, other kinds of things at the moment, yeah. What do you think in that case? You know, you were talking there about teachings such as the Bardo uh, mm. teaching, the 49 days, and you're talking there also about different uh, ideas than the, the typical karmic ideas whereby your practice in a previous life sets you up even better in the next and so on. Mm -hmm. You're, you're see seeing something there not quite adding up. What's, what's your take on the Truku system? Well, the Truku system, it, it can work fantastically for sure, it, but it often doesn't, yeah. Uh, I think that's well known. And then, of course, um, Dujon Rinpoche, you know, you know Dujon Rinpoche and Dujon Lingpa, Dujon Lingpa. Yes. Dujon Lingpa never had a human teacher. He was in a part of Tibet that was kind of remote. He was actually still alive when Dujon Rinpoche with himself was born. So the, the two incarnations were simultaneous 
you know, he wasn't, it wasn't like Dujon Lingpa died and then at, at a period of one or two years. And the space between incarnations in the Tibetan tradition is, is usually not 49 days anyway. So it's, I do find that there's a lot of people, Westerners often, the teaching on the Bardo, and I think it's dangerous, to be quite honest. I think it's, it's, it's doctrinal rather than experiential. They have no experience of what they're talking about often. I question. I would. I, I wouldn't say it's no experience, but I question. I question the, the validity of, of of taking a stand like that, in as much as as it's, it's definite. This is definitely how it is. It's um, the world is um, full of mystery. <laughs> mm. Yes. And how would one begin to contact direct experience of of these sorts of realms that? have been your heart's exploration for for these years? Well, it only usually happens when there's a reason for it. It's only when somebody loses somebody close, you know, loses somebody they really love, especially losing a child. You know, I look, I look watch on TV and you see, you know, all the knife crime is taking place in Britain now and because knife crime in America, gun crime is far more common. But if you have a gun in in, you, in England, you get a long sentence. If you kill somebody with a knife, it's usually a very short sentence. And the poor, you know, these poor kids who usually belong to, you know, poor backgrounds. And, and the parents just, they, they never get the, the, the trial they want. They never get the truth. They never find the person often. And they're suffering all their lives with this terrible, terrible state. And, you know, it's, it's, it's that that kind of I keep in my heart. It's an openness to people who, who really suffer from um, not understanding where the loved one is who's passed over. I'm not saying I'm, I'm able to communicate to that being in another realm, in another world. Um, I'm just saying that I have an, uh, enough knowledge now to be able to speak with confidence um, with a person and not really make any projections whatsoever, just to be there with them. So it's it's kind of like a spiritual counselling, a bereavement counselling, but with a, a a spiritual, a completely spiritual rather than doctrinal or, or based on any psycho psychological or, or s religious tradition as such. Yeah. It's just an, op an openness, an openness, and when I'm with those people, it's 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 that. It's humility. It's a human, a humbling experience. One of the experiences of people who have lost somebody, I think, that's quite startling and surprising, is the amount of projection that comes mm. from those who are perhaps attempting to comfort. What do you think is the difference between the way you're talking about the sort of open, more experientially oriented counselling? compared mm. to how um, others might instinctively try to comfort and then somehow trammel on the whole thing? Well, I don't go out of my way to do it. It's it's people who know me and know something of the work I'm involved with. They probably don't know that much until until the need, you know, the need arises. And then I can talk to them about it. And then I can give pointers to people. Sometimes I just point to a particular book they could read, um, like a a friend of mine, uh, her brother's child died in South Africa, and she's dead now, this friend too, but he, he died quite young, he was a young boy, and, um, you know, so I suggested that he buy one book by 
Peter Fenwick called uh, The Art of Dying. And she wrote to him about it. And then years later, when my friend died, Judy, the, the sister who was the friend, you know, he came to the funeral and he, he mentioned that um, she'd suggested that he read this book and it helped him so much just to tap into that. It's available. These these things are available. That's the thing. It's not it's not something that belongs to somebody. It's it's and, and the beauty I find of afterlife research is pretty much everybody is involved in it is. It's not a competition. <laughs> it's not that you know this is this is highest teaching. It's all the same stuff. It's all basically all of the same humility in the face of of the great beyond, which is staggering, unbelievable. Yeah, that's wonderful, mm. Robert. Thank you so much. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Mm. Yeah, thank you too. Yes, it's been wonderful. I'll put all the your website uh, and so on in the show notes so mm. people want to reach out to you and contact you they'll be able to do that through yeah. that link but is there anything uh, more to say or anything still to be said yes there's something still to be said and that comes from you I'd like you to talk me through your near-death experience when you have time that can be in a week it can be in a year I don't mind but I'd, I'd, uh, I'd like to hear because you know it's it's always wonderful to hear these experiences and maybe that informs who you are to some degree also well i would be happy to do so Mm. shall we uh end the recording and then i'd be happy to tell you a bit about it as the recording processes okay robert that was so fascinating thank you very much thank you very much dear thank you for listening to another guru viking podcast for more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.